0: the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Max Lucado, a little shout out to him today. Good job, man, going ahead and uh, bringing the Word of God, even if uh, there were people who wanted you canceled or uninvited from preaching a virtual sermon this past Sunday for the National Cathedral. Um, <clears throat> did anybody actually listen to the sermon? Like, this is always what's uh, curious to me. So the people who... Um, wanted him canceled did they go ahead and listen to the message that he brought because uh suffice it to say he didn't he didn't actually talk about any of the uh uh of the particular concerns that they were raising about his um his theology especially uh the theology and practice in terms of human sexual identity and human relationships so it's just an interesting conversation for us to wade into um, something for you to consider, are you actually open to hearing viewpoints other than your own that's a that's a question that's always worth considering, particularly when you know it's one of our guys being attacked right so you know we love max Lucato. uh you guys have uh, when i've had him on i mean he's he's one of your favorites and so um uh when you know when we look at him being attacked by people who do not favor him because of uh, his stand on uh, on Scripture and therefore on the things of life, um, we have to ask ourselves, are there people about whom or to whom I respond in that way? How would I respond if my church invited and then fill in the blank with the name of somebody who holds a position other than your own? Um, so local congregations absolutely uh, have uh, the full freedom to invite whomever they want to bring the Word of God from, uh, from those pulpits and in those places. The robust conversation that we get into is then would be, you know, what is a church and what are the parameters of a church and how is that going to be defined, not just by uh, the word church on a sign, but by the uh, theology and practice of those um, who constitute that particular expression of the body in that place. So lots of uh, thoughts and conversations that we could have um, on that topic. Uh, let me just say this. I forecast a major—this is a different subject—I forecast a major reform in American public education. So, you know, mark that down. Carmen said it on the 10th of February 2021. Uh, there is a major reform in American public education coming. Light is now uh, shining in ways and in places um, and with such intensity that uh, that even those who would like to ignore it uh, no longer can. Um, There are so many failures in so many of the nation's largest school districts um, failing to educate the next generation. The Wall Street Journal has an expose today, have have teachers unions finally overplayed their hand. Um, Lots of conversations about the success of charter schools, church based schools, uh, private schools, private uh, virtual online schools, homeschooling, homeschool co-ops. The uh, we talk about the disintermediation of many things. Uh, and school, public school, looks like the next one. All right, Bill English and I are going to take up the topic of um, female labor participation rates, um, which might sound a little wonky, but trust me, you're going to want to hear this. And why won't teachers go back to school? And what do unions have to do with this whole conversation? All right, all of that up next on Mornings with Carmen. bibleandbusiness.com. welcome to this celebration of your book launch whoop, whoop.
2: hey thank you
0: so thank if you, you guys you. go to yeah, if you guys go to Amazon uh, today you can see a Christian theology of business ownership an introduction for Christian entrepreneurs on what the Bible says about owning a business by Bill English whoop,
1: whoop. Yep.
2: Yeah. five years in the making uh, 450 well it depends on how it's formatted between 450 and 500 pages. 650 footnotes in five long years of my life are in that book. <laughs>
0: and so many conversations.
2: Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, there
0: you go. Yeah. Let's, um, let's uh, in terms of headlines, let's jump in on this headline related to um, female labor participation rates. Um, so that sounds kind of wonky, but it really just means that fewer women are now working outside the home.
2: Uh yes, uh the female labor force participation rate hit an all-time low in January. Um and uh that's kind of being touted in some articles as as a, as an incredibly um noteworthy thing and something that we should all be concerned about. But when you actually go in and look at the labor force participation rate, now now remember the labor force participation rate is published by the Department of Labor and it and it measures how many people who could be working Uh, Between the ages, I believe, of 18 and I want to say 63 or 65 uh, are actually working. In other words, what portion of that labor force is actually working? That's why it's called a participation rate. Uh, and almost everybody is down. The the, fa- the fact that the women piece is down lower uh, than they have ever been before is really, in my opinion, not all that significant because uh, Hispanics, Asians, blacks, men, they're all down to very low levels and all are close to record levels. So the overall labor force participation rate uh, was hit an all time low for our country in April of 2020 at 60.2 percent. So you could say that for every 10 adults who could have been working, only six were working. Mm. Um, In January, that stood at 61.4%. If you go back 20 years to January of 2001, it was at 67%. So literally, in 20 years, we've gone from 7 in 10 working to 6 in 10 working. And I think the question is, you know, why is this dropping over a 20-year period? I think a lot of people are looking into that.
0: Um you have any speculation on that why why it's dropped over this twenty year period of time?
2: you know over the last ten years I've probably read two or three articles about uh more people retiring than there mm-hmm. are people uh, entering the workforce so as as the boomers retire and there just weren't that many uh, gen Xers um the the next two generations um there's there there there's just not as many of them coming into the workforce so that that's one reason as the boomers uh die off to be i'm sorry to be crass, crass with that, but as they die off, the pool of who can work shrinks, and so the per- percentage might uh, go up or down uh depending upon who's actually working that day
0: all um, right um go ahead. there's a there's a bunch of people who have jobs but they won't go to them um I'm speaking specifically about teachers and i i I want to be careful because I know that there are teachers listening right now who um, believe that it's too risky to go back to school, and therefore they want to continue what has now been, um, in some cases, a full year um, out of the classroom, many of them also not teaching online um, because they teach in, uh, in places where that has not been the school district's uh, way of approaching um, this pandemic. Why won't teachers go back to work in places where um, kids, the gap between uh, those who have continued with their education one way or another and those who have been um, not in any educational environment for now a solid year? I mean, as that gap grows wider and wider and wider, why won't teachers go back to work?
2: Well, Look, unions like every like every other organization have differing have membership who have differing opinions, right? There are some teachers who are strongly against going back because of the risk of COVID. There are others who are saying, you know, if we just open up the school safely, and there are ways to do this safely, then then we ought to be able to go back to protect the kids, protect the teachers, protect everybody. So um the there there is no one reason why they go why they're not going back other than to my knowledge. It is mainly because the unions have such a lock on the employment or employee employer relationship that they're simply not allowing uh, their their constituents to go back in. Um, And and it's all because of covid. It's all because of this. So, look, I think as the uh, vaccination programs get baked in, uh, you know, I've been I've been vaccinated now. Um, and so, as healthcare workers get vaccinated, teachers get vaccinated. We know that children don't really contract this virus, or at least they're not. It's not a high percentage of them that will, um, in, in, a, in a detrimental way. So, it, it just seems to me that the argument about COVID will uh, wane over time, and that that the schools will be able to open up. But it's really all about COVID, to my knowledge.
0: Yeah, and I'm sort of one of those people who's going to say, you know what, let's see, because I feel like there are a lot of people who are now saying there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, And now we've been doing it at home or online or in hybrid ways for so long. Um, Our interest in going back to the way we were doing it um, has also changed. Um, So I just think it's going to be a really interesting conversation going forward. All right. Uh, Bill English and I are going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to pivot to a conversation um, about Amazon. There is a unionization effort. Uh it would be it would be a first for uh for that massive company. All right, that's up next. Here on Mornings with
3: Carmen. Hey. Oh,
2: oh, oh,
0: hey. oh, okay, continuing my conversation with Bill English from Bibleandbusiness.com. Also, now I will begin to introduce him. As the author of A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, available now. Uh, Bill, let's talk about Amazon um, and let's talk about efforts at unionization, at least in one location.
2: Yeah, this is in Bessemer, Alabama, and uh, the union is trying to um, unionize the workers uh, at one of their distribution plants uh, down in Bessemer. Um, And, uh, you know, who knows how it's going to go? The vote's happening uh, right now, and I haven't heard. Uh, any early returns on it. I don't know if you have, um, but it's
0: not, it's not like, um, I don't know what kind of machines they're using, so I don't know how reliable the outcomes will be. I'm sorry. Let me just take that back. I i have not heard. Yeah. I don't know.
2: You had to go there, didn't
0: you? I don't even know if I'm going to trust it when they bring them forward. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, it's God. so hard, right? Right. I mean, I know that, like I say that in jest and there's probably people who are not going to at me, but I do think we've like arrived at this really difficult place where we're going to we're going to trust voting outcomes in, you know, isn't this the situation where um, they said they wouldn't trust mail-in ballots? You isn't know, this that just is part of the same conversation. Like uh, we can do this, yes, but we can't is. have mail-in ballots. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I, just, I mean, yeah, we can do it for I, a I national presidential election, but we can't do it for people voting on whether or not to unionize. I, I don't. No, it's so com- <laughs> it's it's all very complicated. I'm sorry. But you know what Carmen, this this
2: is even that conversation is a sub-conversation of the much larger issue in our society about what is truth. What can mm. I trust? What mm. is truth? And so, but let's let's get back to the <laughs> this yes. this union piece. Look, in the early years, way back during the Industrial Revolution, I think unions were necessary to curb the onerous and often dangerous work environments that I think greedy owners expected employees to work in. Uh, empl- employers back then were really horrible towards their employees. And uh, unions were necessary to balance the power between the employees and the employer. And I, th- I think they reached their, their zenith, so to speak, in the 60s, maybe early 70s, when about 30% of America was unionized. Today, the workforce, it's about 7%. Um, to me, this, this all comes back to business owners not following God's principles for ownership, Uh, And they are not um, being kind to their employees and being good to their employees in a way that might cost them on the bottom line, but it's honoring to God and it's honoring to that person. I, I think a person who owns a business, if they really are interested in following God, they are going to be very, very good to their employees and their employees won't need to form a union because the power imbalance will not be an issue.
0: I remember a conversation with Oz Guinness—this is, a, this is a, it's going to seem like a digression here for just a second—about <clears throat> sure. um, why the brewery workers uh, for Guinness um, did not unionize when pretty much everyone else did. And uh, as the conversation goes related to the way the Guinness family operated their business, it was because workers wanted for nothing. The workers had no want. They already, they were treating their workers in a way that dignified them as image bearers of God. I mean, like that was uh, their, that, you know, I mean, that was the way they operated their business. And so I do think there's a conversation um, about Christians in leadership in all kinds of organizational settings. um, And what's right, what's the right thing to do? For the people who labor uh, among you, I mean this is probably a conversation that big churches should have about you know what what is the distance in earning between the highest and lowest paid person? What are the benefits that are uh, that are given to people in certain positions but not to people in other positions? i mean I just I think there are all kinds of conversations as Christians that we should be having recognizing that we 're all parts you know of of the same body, and although we have different functions um, no one is ultimately, you know, more important than any other. I'm not saying that everybody should get paid the same thing. Um, I'm saying that we should treat one another with the dignity, do one another as image bearers of God.
2: And when we pay our pastors less because we can, to me, that is sin. That is sin. Uh, A lot of pastors, because of their call, they will take the position and they'll take a lower wage, even... That, that that's even below the average of what the elders earn. I, I, I firmly believe that pastors you start with pastoral salaries by looking at an average of what the elders earn and take all their comp packages. I've never
0: heard that before.
2: You never have? Oh it's no it's, I'm sorry, it's a shameless plug. It's in my book. Um so <laughs> but it's it's something that if if you take the comp packages for all the elders and average them, pay your senior pastor that and if well, you can't and, afford and to wouldn't
0: that wouldn't that make for an interesting conversation then also about uh about giving because if we're going to be transparent about what we're making um then it's also easier to you know for us to say to one another um you know of that are you tithing are you like, tithing? I, I just you are um man you're you have gone you have gone from a conversation about a union vote in Alabama right into <laughs> meddling you have gone you went from yeah you went from preaching to meddling right there. I heard it. I watched it. I saw it happen. It,
2: well, and and I and you went there with me, too. <laughs> so, you know, look, look, I, I think financial generosity is, is the key to so many problems in our churches that mm-hmm. it's hard to overstate its importance. It really is. It, it's the key to walking with God closely. It's the key to um, unleashing the salt and lightness, if I can put it that way, of the church in our, in our community. It is the key to stopping pastoral burnout and, and just fatigue because they're scrimping and scraping for every dollar that they can get. You know, a lot of pastors leave not because they're tired of ministry. They're, they're just financially fatigued and, and they just can't do it anymore. Um, It is the key to so many things. And uh, um, uh, uh, to me, going back to the union piece, I'll say it again. If a business owner treats their employees the way God would have him or her treat them, the unions will not be necessary.
0: Amen. All right, Bill English, thank you as always so much. Bibleandbusiness.com. Also, check out the newly released I got to scroll back to get the full title because it's long, A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, an introduction for Christian entrepreneurs on what the Bible says about owning a business by Bill English. Hey, congratulations, man. That's exciting.
2: Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. We'll
0: be back. We'll be back. We'll talk with you again soon. When you think about uh, the story of your life, what chapter are you in? Do you like this chapter? Are you thinking, you know what, this chapter of my life is great. All right, well, then you're not going to like the next segment. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Sharon James joins me. When you don't like your story, like, how do you change it? How um, How do you take the worst chapters and allow God to redeem them that they might become your greatest. So, when you don't like your story, what if your worst chapters could become your greatest? Sharon Jane's on that next.
1: This is Max Lucado. In the book of Job, he asks, "God, why is this happening to me?" So God speaks. Out of the thunder he speaks. For all of us who would put ditto marks under Job's question and sign our names to it, he speaks. For the father who holds a rose taken off his son's coffin. For the wife who holds the flag taken off her husband's casket. For the couple with the barren womb and the fervent prayers. For any person who has tried to see God through shattered glass, he speaks. For those of us who have dared to say, If God is God, then... God speaks. He speaks out of the storm and into the storm, for that is where Job is, and that is where God is best heard. This is Max Locato. Now
0: Some days uh, our efforts to connect with those who we think we're talking to are um, more effective than others. And so right now we're having a little hard time, a little difficulty making a connection with author Sharon Janes. And so I am going to uh, share with you some reflections on a headline that I read this morning on CNN. And and here's a story that, you know... I mean, unless you're really, like, looking around for stuff like this, you're not going to find it. But once you land upon it, I will tell you, um, like, some of these headlines will preach. So here you go. More than 650 silver Roman coins found in a jug in Turkey. Now, the, you know, the Twitter subhead on all of this is like, you know, a piggy bank really worth finding or those kinds of things. But um, this is uh, the 651 Roman coins um, were found in Turkey and have now been released to researchers. Um, they were found in a jug during an archaeological excavation. And um, it, it's uh, it's extraordinary. So, so, Okay, so they date from the period of Emperor Augustus, who ruled from 44 B.C. to 14 A.D. Now, what do you know about the reign of Emperor Augustus? Where does that name come to you when you think about um, the readings that we did in the lead up to Christmas and the birth of Christ. Well, we talked about uh, the Emperor Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who called for a what? Well, he called for a census. Well, he called for a census of all the people um, in the Roman Empire. And so one of the opportunities that this creates for us is, is the opportunity to put down um, a historical marker related to Jesus. Because even in this very secular article, when does it say that the emperor Augustus ruled from 44 B.C. to 14 A.D. Well, what in the world does the 44 B.C. and the 14 A.D. relate to? Um, that would be Jesus. That would be Jesus. Time is not marked on calendars today um, by the birth and the death of a Roman Empire, but by the birth of one whom the Roman Empire crucified. Think about that for just a moment. These coins found in 2019, released now in 2021, uh, in, in in a in a archaeological dig in Turkey. These Roman coins date to a time period that is marked by Christ. So I'm just saying, there's just all kinds of opportunities. You could also um, have the Seeking that which is lost, and, and how hard would you try to find it, and all kinds of uh, of conversations like that. All right, Sharon James is now on the line. Sharon, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. How are Good you? Good morning. Oh, I am well. How are you? Good. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. So, Sharon, let me um, let me start with this. Um, there are maybe things in my story, uh, in the life in, in my life that I don't necessarily like. But they are also maybe characters or events that um, I cannot nor would not change. So how can I how can I live a new story if I don't like the way that mine is currently unfolding?
3: That is such a good question, and I think now, during you know twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one I think we 're thinking about stories in our lives that we wish we could just tear out, rip out, wish weren 't there, and you know twenty twenty might be one of those stories. Um, I think what we need to do is to realize that some of those stories that we wish we could rip out are actually when that God's going to use the most in our lives once we allow God to redeem them. You know, we have these stories, Carmen, and and sometimes we, we really don't want God to use them and we really do want to rip them out. And we what I call that is like picking at scabs. And that might be kind mm-hmm. of a, a hard thing to hear this early in the morning, but we can tend to to pick at emotional scabs when someone has hurt us and we really don't want to let it go. And it's a strange thing in the human mind, but we've kind of put those hurts up on a shelf and we've Polish them, and we think this is why I'm the way I am, because this person hurt me, and I am not going to let it go, and as long as we do that, Carmen, we will stay stuck in a bad story. but remember when Jesus came to that man who'd been sitting by the pool of water for thirty eight years, waiting for an angel to stir it so he could hop in because he was lame, and Jesus asked him the strangest question, he said, Do you want to get well so that is an important question you know I read that the first time I thought what a strange question. Of course he does. But then I started realizing that sometimes I can get stuck in a bad story and I really don't want to get well. I mean, maybe I say that I do, but at least I know what to expect in this bad story. So in order to have a story and change the end of that story, we have to make a decision. Do I want to get well? Do I want to have a different ending to this story? And once we decide that, then there are two important steps. And that is one, forgiving those people who have hurt us. And number two, Carmen, forgiving ourselves, because so many times we can get stuck in a bad story because of decisions that we've made. And, and we have a really hard time letting go with that. We think, I don't deserve it. Well, no, you don't. No, I don't. Uh, but look what Jesus did for us. I mean, we didn't deserve that. But Jesus gave his life for us and so that we can be forgiven and I often hear people say, well, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And you know what? That's putting putting our standards way higher than God's. And you know who it is that doesn't want us to forgive ourselves and doesn't want to let it, us to let it go is the devil himself, right? Because mm-hmm. once we do forgive someone else, once we do forgive ourselves, then God can redeem that story and it can have a new ending. And here's the best part of a new ending. Once we have a new ending, we can share that story with someone else about how God brought us through, how God picked us up, how God moved us forward. But it all starts with the decision, I don't want to be stuck in this story any longer. And you know, what the circumstances might not change. Circumstances probably won't change. But the way we have a new ending is that we're doing something with that story by helping other people rather than staying stuck in it.
0: Okay, so that um that point that you're making about the circumstances may not change, but you know, but how I see them and experience them. I think that's a huge part of um of what you are teaching us how to do, and that is the looking through the right lens. And I want you to share about that in just a second. But let me remind people that I am talking with uh Sharon Janes. She's the author of When You Don't Like Your Story, What If Your Worst Chapters Could Become Your Greatest? If this is where you are, and you would uh, like some help um, being in a, in a place different than you are by help in changing your perspective uh, about your situation and God's uh, redemptive power in the midst of it. We're giving books away today. And so, if you're interested in entering the drawing, text the word book to 877 933 2484. Sharon, talk with us about um, looking through the right lens. Hey,
3: Carmen, if you've ever been to, um, An eye doctor and had an eye exam, you know, they put the chart up on the wall. It's got those itty bitty little letters and they're getting smaller. (laughs) They're getting smaller. They're getting smaller. They're getting smaller. But then they put he puts down a lens or she puts down a lens and then puts down another lens and says, Which one is better? which one can you see this more clearly? Lens one or lens two? Lens three or lens four? And we pick out the one that helps us to see that chart the best. Well, I think sometimes that with our stories, we are looking through the wrong lens and we have a choice of which lens we're gonna look through. I can look at my story through the selfishness of Sharon, or I can look at my story through the sovereignty of God and the love of God, because I know that when I'm going through something difficult and I don't like it and I'm thinking to myself, I do not like this story. I can keep keep saying that. Why me? Why me? Why me? Or I can flip the lens and say, okay, Lord, what is it that you want me to take away from this story? Help me see the good in this story. I have a friend named Patricia and she is amazing at this and sometimes she just really gets on my nerves because she's always looking at it through such a positive lens but she had a terrible marriage and and um, when I ask her about that she looks through this lens if not of what was done to her and about the terrible things about that, that part of the story but she says oh listen I have got the three greatest kids through that marriage they are such a blessing to me I learned so much about how to trust God through that story I learned how to receive get love and depend on that love from god because of that story you see what she's doing she's looking through a different lens than than she could be looking through just thinking how horrible it was she's looking at all the blessings that she received what she learned, what she learned about God, about her amazing children, about how not only it was like she's like Job and at the end. You know, I've heard about God, but now I see him. I see how he's worked in my life. And that's flipping the lens. That's looking through the correct lens. And once we look in the, through the correct lens, through the sovereignty and the love of God, you know what? There might be some chapters in our lives that we've put titles on. We might need to go back and re title those chapters. And um, I think gratitude is an incredible lens. I mean, if we can look through the lens of gratitude of all that we do have, rather than what we don't have. I mean, I was just making a list the other day, and I know 2020 is not a the worst story in my life, but I started making a list of some of the, the positives that have come out of 2020, rather than than just focusing on the negative which is what you know we hear so much in, in the news and what we tend to talk about because i think don't you think that human nature we just tend to grumble i mean mm-hmm. we just that's what we tend to to look through and and grumbling listen it's so contagious isn't it you know i think about the chis- children of israel And this is not even something in the book, but it just hit me right now is that the the children of Israel, they grumbled and it kept them out of the promised land. And I was thinking about that one day. How did that start? Well, it probably started with one person saying, you know what? I am sick of this manna. And then another person said, you know what? I'm sick of it, too. And then you got two million people grumbling. And that's the way it is in our lives. When we are looking through that negative lens and interpreting our stories through that negative lens, then um, it's contagious. When we look at it through a positive lens, that's contagious. And people start seeing the positives in their own stories.
0: I'm talking with Sharon Janes. Um, You recognize her name. She's an internationally well-known conference speaker, author of 25 books. I don't know. There's like a million people a day who who check in with Sharon in various ways. You can do so at SharonJanes.com. Janes is J-A-Y-N-E-S right now. You could sign up for the free When You Don't Like Your Story online Bible study at SharonJanes.com. And if you're interested in entering the drawing for the complimentary copies that we have of her brand new book, Uh, When You Don't Like Your Story, What If Your Worst Chapters Could Become Your Greatest, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Sharon and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Sharon Janes about her brand new book, When You Don't Like Your Story, What If Your Worst Chapters Could Become Your Greatest. You can join um, Sharon's free online Bible study uh, on this topic at SharonJanes.com, and you can text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you want to enter the drawing for the copies I have available in studio today. Um, Sharon, one of the things that you talk about is that no pain is wasted. Um, and the and the way that God uses tough situations to reveal genuine beauty. Can you um can you
3: till that soil with us? You know, I uh, uh, think Carmen. That before I delve into that, I want to go back, and I think. We were talking earlier about the steps to from to having a better story, and I mentioned forgiveness. I think mm. somebody probably stopped right there and was like mm, not listening anymore, not doing it. And I'm, can I go back and just talk about that for sure? Because absolutely, I, I think that is so important before we talk about how to use our story, because uh, forgiveness is one of those higher steps. It's one of the hardest steps that we take. I remember being at a football game once, and I'm I'm not a big sports fan. Sorry, Super Bowl people. But I was on the end of a row and people were going up those steps those concrete steps right Mm -hmm. beside me and they kept tripping over the step right beside me and at the halftime I am like why are people tripping over this one step and I measured it and it was about mm, quarter of an inch half an inch higher than some of the other steps and I thought you know what. That is it with forgiveness. It's a little bit higher, and it's one that we really tend to trip on as Christians, even though our entire faith is based on forgiveness. We have trouble forgiving other people. So let me talk just a minute what, about what that means. Forgiveness in the, the Greek is the, the language of that the original New Testament was written in, and the word means a, is a phiemi in the Greek, and it, it means to cut someone loose. And in my southern—I know you can tell I'm from the south— Um, I kept saying off of me, off of me when I was, Mm. when I was studying that and I thought, Oh Lord, that's exactly what it is. It's like, get off of me. But what it means to cut someone loose. See, it's not saying that what that person did to you, listen, when you're, you're listening now, I want you to hear this. It's not saying that. What that person did to you doesn't matter or that it was okay. It's saying, I am not going to carry that around with me any longer because you know what? The people we don't forgive, they most of the time don't even know that we're carrying the burden around. And I can promise you they don't care. So what we are doing when we are forgiving someone, we're cutting the person loose. We're not carrying the burden around with them with us any longer. And we're giving that to God and we're setting ourselves free. That's the thing. I've often heard that when you forgive someone, it's like setting the prisoner free and realizing the prisoner was you. We cannot have a different story as long as we have people strapped to our backs that we're not forgiving. So I want to make sure we we understand forgiveness is not saying that what they did was okay. We are saying it's not going to control me any longer. I'm going to give that to God. And then secondly, we said forgiving ourselves that's the same thing. It's not carrying that burden around with us any longer, but but accepting God's forgiveness um, of what he has done for us and letting it go. Now, once we can do those two steps, then here comes the beauty of it all. Then we can tell our stories. Then we stop picking at those emotional scabs and they can become beautiful scars. Remember when Jesus was resurrected and he went back to the disciples in that upper room for the first Mm -hmm. time? And he Mm -hmm. walked in and I really don't think they knew who he was until he uh, he showed him his hands pulled up his tunic, showed him his his side, and they saw his scars. And I was reading that one day, and and it was as if God was saying to me, and that's still how people know Jesus today, when we're not ashamed to show our scars. But you see, we have to go from being wounded to, to healing to having a scar, and then we tell our stories about what God has brought us through. It tells us in Revelation, they overcame him. This is talking about Satan or the devil, the serpent. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and I bet you know the rest of it, the word of their testimony. And listen, think about that. The word of the lamb, I'm sorry, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony in the same sentence. Mm. That means your story has so much power that it is in the same sentence with the blood of the lamb. No wonder the devil doesn't want you telling it. No wonder he wants you to stay stuck in a story of shame and condemnation. He didn't want you telling it. But once you tell your story of what God has done, the devil cannot use that against you any longer. That's when you truly leave that pain place and that shame place, when you turn around and use it for good, and you will have a better story. You know, Romans 8, 28 is one of those those Christian verses we cherry pick out and, and love to, to say a lot, that, that God uses all things for the good to those who love God and are caught according to his purpose. But you know what I think that good is? I think that good is when we take our stories, the painful parts of our stories, we allow God to heal us and redeem it. And the good is that when we can use that story to tell someone else who's going through a similar situation about what God has done in our lives. Hey, let me do one more verse too. First Corinthians, it says this verse that God comforts us in all of our struggles so that we can comfort those with who are going through a similar struggle with the comfort we've received from God. I didn't quote that just right, but that's the gist of it. And what that verse is saying is that God doesn't comfort us just to make us comfortable. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't think God's all that interested in my comfort. But <laughs> he is interested in, in comforting me so that I can then use what I've gone through to comfort someone else and Carmen, I know you've experienced this too, God will bring people across my path who are experiencing the same kind of hurt that I've experienced in my path. And that is not an accident because he wants to use my exact story to help someone else to know that yes, God can redeem this. Yes, God can change that story and you can have a better story.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm reminded of conversations that um, you know that we've had here over time. Andrea Castile Smith um, and her movement of Scarred Beautiful, um, Plum and her book um, Beautifully Broken, Chloe Howard and her um, Stand Beautiful movement. I mean, such a young woman who gets this. i catching Rice Birds by Marcus Doe. I mean, just on and on and on. People who uh, Christians who have done. Exactly demonstrated in their own lives exactly what you're talking about, which is taking those really terrible chapters of life um, and allowing God to redeem them, and then sharing that story with others in ways that bring them hope, uh, and you know, and promote the gospel. I mean, extend the extend the grace of God to more and more people by having people be able to turn and say, "Aha, God showed up. God redeemed." There's a person bearing witness to that. Um, So, Sharon, thank you so much for the testimony, um, not only of your life, but contained in this book. You guys should uh, join the online Bible study. It's free when you don't like your story at sharonjanes.com. If you want to enter the drawing for the books we have here in studio, go ahead and text the word book to 877 933 2484. Sharon, what a delight. Thank you for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, friends, Um, we are out of time for today, but. I'm trusting God with the day which lies ahead, sending you out into the world that God so loves. Let's walk in ways that honor Jesus. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.